Okay. Good morning. Welcome. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to Good Film Hunting. It's uh, the podcast where two sisters living in different parts of the country come together uh, to talk about movies that they watch with children. And we're so very lucky today to have as a guest star Pam, um, who worked at the Margaret Brown House as a docent. He worked at the Margaret Brown House as a docent. Um, so, Pam, if you'd like to tell a little bit about what you do there, that would be great. The Molly Brown House Museum is open six days a week for guided tours. And this home belonged to Margaret Tobin Brown. Yes, she was never called Molly. How sad. And uh, not only was she a survivor of the sinking of Titanic, but more importantly, she was a leading suffragist, an animal rights activist, a uh, human rights activist, and a labor activist. And I've been telling her story there since 1971. I know that was one of the most impressive parts about the tour when we met you and encountered you was your passion for the Margaret Brown House and telling her story. And we were just so impressed and we're like, we have to have her on the podcast. And we have to talk about the movie The Unsingable Molly Brown starring Debbie Reynolds. So... Um, before we hop into that, though, we really love to start our podcast by asking each other and our guests what is one of their favorite stories or songs or books or movies that they've encountered in the last week. So is there anything um, in the wide world of culture that's really stuck out to you? Do you want me to start? Oh, yeah. Yes, for sure. I think the thing that has stuck out most for me this week is the uh, uh, debut yesterday of the movie Sully about uh, Captain Chesley Sullenberger who landed the Airbus in the Hudson River. And I admire him very much, and I'm really hoping that director Clint Eastwood did a good job with telling his story and that of First Officer Jeff Skiles and their crew. Yeah. No, I do, too. I mean, it looks really good. Tom Hanks is a great actor. And it's got very good reviews um, at Colorado Film Festival last weekend. Uh, so yeah, so I've only heard positive things. Yeah. Okay, so my pop culture thing, well, it's kind of something I decided for myself, but um, Sam, have you ever heard of the Bechdel test? It's, no, I don't think so. Yeah, well, it's super interesting. The Bechdel test is, um, it tests in movies and TV shows and books whether or not main female protagonists talk about something other than men more than half the time. So I took that Bechdel test um, and put it, on, like, into my own life, um, and it's been kind of amazing. <laughs> so I've just, like, kind of stopped talking about romantic interest or, you know, I don't know, guys I think are cute. And I don't know, it just like kind of changed everything. I feel like I'm a much more interesting human being. So that's kind of what I'm into right now. <laughs> Whereas for me, I took a very like, low-key interest this week and really enjoyed the movie Joyful Noise, which just dropped on Netflix because it stars Queen Latifos, whom we've talked about in our past as being a mutual favorite. And Dolly Parton, it was just so much fun. Yes. Okay, so we thought uh, that we would now jump into discussing Margaret Brown. Um, 
Oh, and sorry, Helena reminded me. Um, we need to start with a log line, which is basically just um, an explanation of what happens in a movie. So in The Unthinkable Molly Brown, for our listeners who haven't seen it, it tells the story of Margaret Tobin Brown, um, who seems to be kind of backwoodsy and then moves to the cosmopolitan Denver um, and struggles to fit in there. So that kind of is what the, the whole story is about. But so, Pam, I, I wanted to, to talk with you today about how this movie made Molly Brown's theme. I can't say that I love the character from the movie. I think that she's kind of selfish and she seems very into money and appearances. But I know from um, the time at the Molly Brown house with you that that was not really her biggest concern. Um, she might have been concerned with being accepted, but she had a lot of other cool things going on that they don't really highlight. Um, so I wanted to know what your thoughts on that were. And I think that a lot of that dichotomy has to do with the fact that movies are made primarily for one of two purposes, entertainment or information. And sometimes they can be both. But remember, the movie The Unthinkable Molly Brown was adapted from a Broadway musical, and they are always for entertainment. <laughs> the liberties are, liberties are taken in the story, and I know you understand that. And to say that Meredith Wilson and Richard Morris, who wrote the musical, took liberties with Mrs. Brown's story, would be a gross understatement. They just, they, they, they changed everything, including their name, because she was yep. never called Molly. Yes. But it... the good thing about the musical and the movie is that it really brought Mrs. Brown, albeit in a very altered form, into the forefront of the public consciousness, and that very much helped get her house saved. Yes, that's true. So, Eleanor, you had some yes. questions, too. I was wondering if you would be able to recount the story kind of in a way of how the Insinkable Molly Brown influenced and, in a way, saved um, Margaret Brown's home from being demolished, because that was something I had never thought of, how, how, a, how a movie musical could really impact a city and a community. And and in every excellent way, the movie version of The Unthinkable Molly Brown really did that. Denver, like many cities in the 1960s, went through what was called urban renewal, mm-hmm. where older and in some cases very architecturally and historically significant structures were demolished so that modern buildings could be uh, constructed on that land. Yeah, And Denver lost a whole lot of really beautiful mansions and houses of worship and public buildings during this urban renewal craze. The Molly Brown House, the physical structure itself, at 1340 Pennsylvania Street in Denver, was still standing in 1970, but it was in very bad condition. And... There were a number of people, including my late mother, Eleanor Mahonchak, who were involved in trying to save all of these buildings that were being torn down. When it came 
to Molly Brown's house and people heard it was going to be torn down, they literally said, what? Tear down Molly Brown's house? It's like from the movie? Never underestimate the power of the movies, girls, because I tell you what, they took out their checkbooks and they wrote checks with zeros and the house was saved and we restored it to its 1910 appearance and we welcomed thousands of visitors every year and they get to hear the real story of Margaret Tobin Brown. But I'll tell you what, it's the movie story of the unthinkable Molly Brown that made that possible. Yes, it's true. I think that that's a valuable point. I I don't know. I had a hard time watching it, so I think, I mean, it's, it's an enjoyable movie. Um, but I was like, wait, she's so much cooler than this. Like, she fought for, like, labor unions, and she fought for children, and she fought for the women's right to vote, and I wanted to see that. Um, but maybe one day there'll be another movie that actually tells about her life. <laughs> we can hope. Well, one would always hope. Do you have a favorite part of this movie, or is there a particular song that you enjoy more than any of the others? I know at the beginning we have, we have um, her soon-to-be husband singing about Colorado. There's, like, a lot of fun moments. And my, my favorite part of any musical are always the songs. And there's always a big showstopper at the end of Act 1, and there's usually a little tearjerker at some point during Act 2. And yep. for me, uh, the song that gets me every time is Hard Press Now, who, of course, plays Mrs. Brown's husband, J.J., mm-hmm. singing, I'll never say no to you. And, of course, J.J. said no to her more. But the right. song is great. <laughs> Yeah, that song is really great, and I I enjoyed it too. I I've never seen that actor in anything else though. Um, and Eleanor and I watched all the musicals growing up, um, the MGM and other production houses. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen him before. But so I was watching this with my roommate, and we actually made a couple of connections to other movies. We thought that it as a, as a film seemed kind of like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers um, in the sense that it was out west and it was about getting married and like, finding someone to be with. And then it was also a little bit like Gone with the Wind because the woman, you know, is trying to live this grand life and becomes separated from her husband and then, but obviously different endings. So it was it's an interesting story. I feel like it shares a lot with Funny Girl. Oh. And I'm a big Barbara Streisand fan. And Funny Girl is a, a young woman from Fanny Bryce, uh, who is quote-unquote Funny Girl. Fanny Bryce was a young woman from very humble circumstances in uh, the, the borough of Brooklyn. And she rose uh, with the help of uh, a man, uh, Vidfield, who uh, had a, a show. And I I feel like the parallels are, are closer to Funny Girl, in, in my mind, at least in terms of a young woman striving and rising in society. And then when she gets to where she thought she had wanted to be, she loses the great love of her life. 
Right. It turns out to be not everything that she had wished. Right. No, I think that's just very true. I hadn't thought of Sunny Girl. But, yeah, those are very good parallels. I'm wondering if you can also explain um, for our listeners, but for me as well, what the the Denver 36 was, or is that group of people who she's dying to get in with? What was the significance of that? Did it actually exist? Was there was the people like that? You bet they did. So just because the story in the movie is not necessarily uh, factually correct, there are bits and pieces of it that certainly are. And the sacred 36 were the 36 women who could fit at the nine card tables that Mrs. Crawford Hill, their unofficial arbiter and, and head, could fit into her front parlor. So let's do a little basic math. Nine times four equals? 36. And those 36 women would get together two afternoons a week to play the card game Whist, which is an old Victorian card game. Still, some people play it today, I guess. And they would sit and gossip about other women. And boy, howdy, did Margaret Tobin Brown give them something to gossip about. Because she was out there trying to save the doggone world. There was always something going on with Mrs. Brown that simply outraged these women. And I say, good for you, Margaret, because you were not sitting around playing a card game. You were out changing the cards for those who'd been dealt a bad hand in their lives, and I say yay. Yes, yeah, we all say yay. Yeah, I I mean, I echo your sentiment. That's awesome. So these women, did they kind of control Denver society at that time, too? So if you weren't at the card table, you also weren't invited to, like, parties and all that kind of stuff? In, In great measure, yes, that is correct. And it's true that Mrs. Brown was never a part of that circle. However, she was a part of a wider circle that included women like herself who were fighting for medical activists. Um, It's important to remember that when J.J. and Margaret moved from Leadville down to Denver in 1894, they were introduced to Denver society by none other than the current Colorado governor and his wife. So they were in a circle that that would be maybe of more significance, but no, they weren't ever in that upper, upper echelon. But I don't know. I think I count that as a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. When when you talk about her being part of a larger extended network, does that – did that also include other women whose names we don't know, um, but who were really influential in that at the time? Of course it does. And there were there were quite a number of them, and don't ask me to name them off the top of my head, but there were quite a n- number of them. Because then, as now, when a project needed to get done, when funds needed to be raised, such as the building of cathedral at the Immaculate Conception. The men in charge, like the priests and, and uh, uh, the, the 
deacons turned to the women of the parish to go out and do the fundraising. And the women put on a wonderful fair, an international night in Denver, and raised thousands upon thousands of dollars for the construction budget. So, yeah, really, it's always been pretty much the same. When you need to get stuff done, you look to the women to get out there and get working. Too true. Yeah, too true. So kind of with that, do you feel, I mean, I'm just trying to think, I I was only in Denver for 24 hours. Um, So do you think that the same spirit lives in Denver, like that the Margaret Brown spirit is, do do the citizens of Denver still really hold on to that and, and are making good on everything that the work that she did so long ago? I feel like, yes, we are, and I feel like Historic Denver, the organization that owns the Molly Brown House Museum, has have been and continues to be a prime mover in the, the historical preservation and the, the dissemination of Mrs. Brown's life and her story. And... We do all kinds of outreach things. We have the carpet bag program where we go into schools and talk to uh, third and fourth graders about Ms. Brown and about her life. And I think the city of Denver as a whole does show a lot of the independent spirit and the um, determination that Mrs. Brown embodied. Um, we're, we're still a, a growing city. And uh, one of the one of the things that people complain about a lot is so many people are moving here. It's changing so fast. And as a Denver native, I don't see that as a bad thing. I just think that people now are realizing what I've known for 58 years that Denver is the very best place in the world to live. Yeah, I mean it was lovely. I had a really lovely time there, and I definitely cannot wait to get back. Um, but another part of, of Margaret Brown's story that you shared um, on our tour that I thought was really pretty fantastic, and you kind of see it in the movie, I mean, you get maybe an idea, is that she only um, employed uh, foreign-born citizens in her home, right? She always Correct. immigrants? Yes. Well, and what, yes. Oh, I was just going to add, like, I also, what I did appreciate about the movie is it did show her genuine love of education and her, she worked so hard to become fluent in so many languages to, and really become a cultured member of society. And she did that uh, because of her parents. Her parents, John and Joanna Tobin, were Irish immigrants, and Margaret grew up in Hannibal, Missouri. She had an eighth grade education which for a young woman in the uh, 1870s was considered a full and complete education. But Margaret never thought it was. And throughout her life, she brought in tutors and teachers of all sorts into her home. And, yes, she did make it a point to always hire Irish household service. She wanted to help out her uh, countrymen and women, she felt like. And it also made her parents who lived with her in their later years, feel very comfortable to be surrounded by those young men and young women 
with those lovely Irish brogue accents. And the whole group, the Tobins and Margaret and JJ and the uh, uh, household servants, would all get together in the library uh, of the home whenever a tutor or teacher was present. Because Mrs. Brown felt like if there was someone that was teaching them something, that took precedence over everything else, including housework. And I love that. Yeah, that is so great. Um, okay, another question I had for you was, I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about JJ and Margaret's relationship, um, especially towards the end of their lives, because I was reading on Wikipedia about Margaret Brown, and they said that there was at least the Wikipedia page, which I know is not always the, the best source, um, said that even towards the end of their lives, they were still good friends. They still talked really frequently. He still supported her and supported her philanthropic efforts. Um, I just wanted to know if you could touch a little bit more on that. Well, I'm going to give Wikipedia a gold star on that because that's exactly correct. And, yes, it was a marriage, and marriages are complicated. And Margaret and J.J. were very much in love when they first met and married in Leadville in 1886. They moved down to Denver eight years later. And that was a big change in more ways than one. Their marriage changed as a result of their advancement in uh, economic status. And their interests diverged at that time. Mrs. Brown was freed from the minute-to-minute care of the two children, Larry and Catherine Ellen, and she was able to start pursuing her own interests which it turns out she had quite many, all of her different causes. And J.J. was free to per- pursue his other interests, which occasionally included other women. And, yes, they they decided it was better if they lived apart beginning in 1909. And because their Catholic faith prevented them from getting a divorce, they did remain legally married, although they obtained a separation. But JJ kept paying the bills, and yes, it was what I would be, what would be called now an amicable separation. They uh, stayed close. JJ supported her financially, and I think the the thing about the separation was that it just provided him the ability to move away from Denver and to pursue his, I'll just say, other interests without any social stigma. Right, right. That's fascinating. Did he die first? He did. He died 10 years before she did. He died in 1922. He was actually visiting their daughter, who was, of course, then a young mother herself, who lived on Long Island, New York. Okay. Oh, so he was on the other side of the country. Yes. And so he's buried at Holywood Cemetery in Westbury, Long Island. Oh, interesting. Is she in De- is she buried in Denver? No, she's not, because she was living at the Barbizon Hotel for Women in New York City when she died in October nineteen thirty two. And guess what? Helen made the burial arrangements and put Margaret 
right next to JJ in Westbury, Long Island. Oh, that's it. Well, that's that's kind of a happy ending to that, you know, that they did get to end up next to each other, even though both were. They ended up. They ended up together at the end. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's that's sweet. That's good to know. I also wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about her as an actress. I thought that was so interesting, especially, I don't know if you've been able to see this movie yet, but um, there's a movie out called Florence Foster Jenkins about, Meryl Streep is in it, it's about this woman who um, later in life decides she wants to be an opera singer and is kind of famously bad at it, (laughs) but but she did it, she pursued that dream. And I want to know, was, was Margaret Brown acting kind of like I, that, something that she truly was interested in and, and good at? I'm going to say I'm smiling at your comments about Florence Foster Jenkins because, <laughs> really, when I saw that movie, it did kind of remind me of Mrs. Brown in her later years. You know, the fight for women's suffrage ended with the ratification of the 19th Amendment in August 1920. And Mrs. Brown turned her attention and her considerable energies to other causes. She spent several years in France working with the Committee to Rebuild Devastated France Mm -hmm. and uh, helping refugees and uh, displaced persons get their lives back together. But then, yes, after the uh, stock market crash, in 1929, her financial needs were somewhat diminished, mm-hmm. and she needed to do something that perhaps was not on quite as grand a scale as what she had done in the past, and she had always had an interest in the arts. She had given musical performances and dramatic readings at some of her fundraisers throughout the years in Denver. So, she said... Like many women, if I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. And she <laughs> headed to New York. The Barbizon Hotel for Women was uh, a haven in New York City for young women in the arts. And Mrs. Brown was taking acting lessons and singing and musical performance lessons. And, yes, there was a bit of Florence Foster Jenkins in there. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but but I, I feel like at, at the end of her life, She did, as I think I'm doing now, because I'm getting older, and I'm looking more to things that I want to do that are just for me, and I think that's what this was. It was something that was just for her, something she'd always wanted to do, but had never had the time to do before, and I I love it. I love it that she was doing that at the very end of her life. Yeah. I, and, I mean, I, I didn't know much about um, Margaret Brown's acting experience, but having watched uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, I left that movie just being like, how wonderful to just really accept who you are and just say, I'm going to do this and enjoy it anyway. Like, I think that there's such freedom in that. And I really enjoyed that whole story of, yes, I, I might not be the best, but this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to enjoy it and relish every moment of it. And it was great. So, Yeah. Um, okay, so why don't we wrap up? We're coming on towards our time limit here. Um, and 
just first of all, Pam, thank you so much for joining us today. We've heard, learned a whole lot about Margaret Brown and who she really is. Um, and again, we just had a fabulous time on your tour um, at the historic Denver Margaret Brown House. Um, but before we wrap up, we always close with uh, the, the two of us choosing a place we would like to go in the world, um, and then we ask our guests to do the same. So, Eleanor, do you want to start? I think right now, for me, I would love to visit British uh, British Columbia and Vancouver. Uh, it's just being so close to the Canadian border right now in upstate New York. I'm like, where have I not been to Canada that I want to go? And it is there. Okay. Um, I think that I have a choice of where to be right now. I think I would go to Europe. I don't know. I, thought, I think Austria. I've never been, and it's kind of very much on my mind recently, and I'm not really sure why, but it's been good. How about you, Sam? Where would you like to go? Well, having been to both Vancouver and Austria, I can say those are two excellent choices, and you guys are going to love them. Oh, my, my place would be Antarctica, because oh. it's the only one of the seven continents I haven't visited yet. Yeah. Well, then you have to get there. <laughs> Yes, I do. I really yeah. do. Yes, and it will happen. I'm sure of it. I think it will, too. <laughs> well, Pam, thank you so, so, so much, and thanks to Stork Denver for a great tour and for connecting us. Um, we'll talk to you soon, but, again, thank you so, so much for doing this with us today. It's been such a pleasure, Ann and Eleanor. Thank you so much. Oh, you're the best. Well, have a wonderful Saturday. Okay, you too. Bye.